Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to On the Ball with Rick Buecher. Here's your host. Let's send it over to Rick Buecher. Rick Buecher. This is On the Ball on the United Wecast Network, and I am Rick Buecher. You can see me on FS1, hear me on Fox Sports Radio, and you can now read me on the Fox Sports app or at foxsports.com. You can also follow me on both Twitter and Instagram at Rick Buecher. I'm a lot of places, but there's only one place you can hear me talking about story angles and perspectives that you are not likely to find anywhere else, primarily but not exclusively involving the NBA, and that is here. One of the issues with the league's looser rules, and I promise that this podcast is not going to be all about officiating or the referees. I have a much better and bigger topic to get to, but... This is top of mind, so I'm going to throw it out there. Uh, One of the issues with the league's looser rules, I've been told by a former official, is that the younger referees have never had to distinguish acceptable contact around the rim from unlawful contact. Because pretty much everything or anything going to the basket was going to draw a whistle. Now that that has changed this season, there's some issues with Young officials who have never had to call or discern the difference. And that was on display Wednesday night when, or a certain point this week, this past week, when I'm watching foul calls on both Giannis Antetokounmpo attempting to block Obi Toppin at the rim and Scotty Barnes from the Toronto Raptors blocking Josh Richardson's runner coming down the lane. What didn't make sense is that both were reviewed And both showed Barnes and Giannis cleanly making contact with the ball first. Now, the Giannis foul was rightly reversed and called clean. But Barnes' strip of Richardson, and I'm calling it a strip because Richardson was just bringing the ball up and Barnes was able to get a hand on it before he could actually, before Richardson could cock it to get it a shot up. In any case, Barnes, the foul was upheld. And this was with help from the replay center in Secaucus. Now, what I'm not sure of is how much input the game refs get from Secaucus in situations like this, whether it's left to them to make a decision after watching the various angles and replays or whether the veteran refs in Secaucus offer guidance or counsel. Either way, the Barnes call makes no sense. Did he make contact, minimal contact, with Richardson's chest after his clean swipe down on the ball? Yes, but 
While the rulebook doesn't clearly define what a legal blocked shot is, the general rule is that incidental contact after blocking the ball is not a foul. I can't help but feel that sometimes the referees, especially the young referees, because they know that they are being scrutinized and they're trying to make their way up the ladder, are looking for a plausible way not to overturn the call rather than simply use replay to make the most fair, accurate call. And if they are afraid of that, they are afraid of impacting their career, then the people running the referee's system need to assure them that calling the, making the absolute right call, even if they didn't make the initial right call, is the way to go. But enough of my belly aching on inconsistencies with officials or anything else. Inconsistencies happen. As much as we'd like everyone and everything to be treated on an equal basis all the time in pretty much everything. It's not going to happen. So let's get to the main topic of this episode, which is the return of the big man to the NBA. Sort of. It's not as if everybody is employing a big man. Yes, we're seeing Jonas Valanciunas in New Orleans and Steven Adams in Memphis and uh, Nikola Vucevic in Chicago. You're, you're getting legit big men. Almost every team has one. Not every team has one. And as I noted in the last episode, we're never going back to the days of the 7-foot, 280-pound lumbering big man whose main purpose is to set punishing screens and wrestle with the opposing big man for territorial rights to the paint. If we were, Taco Fall would be on a, wouldn't be on a two-way contract with the Cleveland Cavaliers. He is the greatest example, most recent example, that no matter how big you might be, you have to have a requisite amount of skill and speed to compete in the NBA. And if you're going to put value on one or the other, freaky speed is going to give a better chance, give you a better chance of making it than freaky size. Zion Williamson doesn't do what he does around the rim because of his freakish size. It's because of his freakish speed and agility. Take away his speed and he's Big Baby Davis. But we're seeing two developments that have created a wrinkle in the small ball revolution. One is that almost every team, not every, but almost every, team is investing in a seven-foot roller to play center. Some teams may surround that roller with four perimeter players, but everyone wants a Clint Capella or a Mitchell Robinson. Okay, so they're not big men as much as they're skinny big men, skinny big athletic men. But every team is making sure that they have one on the floor at all times. Dwight Powell and Willie Cauley-Stein sharing minutes in Dallas as one example. There are, of course, a handful of teams that are not doing any of that. Toronto is one. Six foot eight Precious Achua is their starting center. The Warriors, with James Wiseman on the shelf, start Kavon Looney. Boston starts six eight Robert Williams. These, chin, these teams generally go with the theory that switching everything and having a couple of leapers on the floor can thwart opponents from relentlessly attacking their rim. But it does leave them both vulnerable to lobs and makes them unable to exploit lobs the way a team with a nimble seven-footer can. Although the Warriors with 
Gary Payton the second appear to be have a at least a solution, a small ball or a small man solution to that. Uh, if you've seen any of the dunks that Gary Payton has thrown down off of lobs. But there are a few teams that are playing decidedly bigger and slower than they have in years. It's not a big shift. Uh, but overall, the pace leader this year, the Houston Rockets, are a full two possessions down per game from last year's leaders, the Washington Wizards. Now, it doesn't sound like much, and in reality, it probably isn't, but that's the fewest possessions the league leader has averaged in four years. The 76ers are the second slowest playing team in the league this year, which makes sense since they are one of the handful of teams that has a traditional center in either Joel Embiid or Andre Drummond on the floor, at least when everybody is available. With Embiid out right now with COVID, uh, they are playing a touch more small ball, but not that much more because Drummond had his minutes ratcheted up to more than 30 a night. What doesn't make sense in all this uh, pace-wise is, is the Miami Heat, who are another one of the teams that plays with a relatively undersized center in 6'9", Bam Adebayo, and then goes to Dwayne Dedman, who is listed as a 7-footer, but he doesn't play that tall. And yet, the Heat play at the slowest pace, as of right now, of anyone in the league. 94-some possessions a game. Another team that has decided it should play big all the time is the Utah Jazz, who signed Hassan Whiteside during the offseason. The Suns have done the same, adding JaVal McGee to play when starting center DeAndre Ayton needs a blow. Now, the value in having two bigs and always using one of them, and no, you're not going to see any Twin Towers anytime soon. Uh, my understanding is that Andre Drummond and Joel Embiid have never, ever been on the floor at the same time. In any case, the value of having two and always using one of them is that you don't have to make dramatic changes in your defensive schemes when you go to your bench. You're playing the same way all the time. You're playing by the same principles. The problem, as I see it with that, is that you're playing the same way all the time, which means if you're big or bigs get into trouble or you get behind in a game, your chances of being able to go small, fast, and blitz your way back into the game is pretty much negated. Now, the Suns are still very capable of playing fast because of Aiton's age and mobility, and JaVale McGee can get up and down the floor for a little bit as well. But the Jazz appear to be conceding that they simply don't have the pieces to play small ball against the best small ball teams and are committing full time to taking their chances playing a more traditional big lineup. Hey, you work with what you have. You work with what, what you have. So I don't fault them for that. But it does leave them vulnerable. It's the same thing we saw last year in that when they fall behind, particularly in the playoffs, even their great three-point shooting is not enough to get them back quickly. You not only have to be able to shoot threes, you have to be able to get up and up and down the court quickly and shoot a lot of them. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care 
a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Which brings me to the Lakers. Among all the things that are baffling about their roster makeup and how they're playing is that up until a few games ago, they were playing at the fastest pace in the league. The oldest team in the league was playing at the fastest pace. A team that, like the Utah Jazz, has two legitimate old school bigs in Dwight Howard and DeAndre Jordan, which when I mean legitimate old school bigs, big bodies who don't space the floor on offense and can be pick and roll liabilities on defense. That team was playing at the league's fastest pace. Now, since LeBron has been out with a strained abdomen, they've slowed way down. So much so that they slid all the way to 20th in the league in pace. That's quite a drop in only a few games. And this is supposed to be at a time when now Russell Westbrook is supposed to be coming to the fore and doing what? Having them play fast. I don't have an answer for you. I'm not sure why. I'm not sure how. Part of it is, of course, that they played the Heat, the slowest playing team in the league in one of the most painful error-strewn games that I've seen in quite some time, especially played between two teams that supposedly have championship aspirations. Now, before I get to the abomination that was the Lakers' overtime win over the Heat, I have to mention something that has to have Jack Nicholson swearing under his breath, if not a lot of other people. I swear I could do an episode on the Lakers every night because they offer so much material. But of all the things the Lakers do, that is a sign of a team that just doesn't give a bleep. It's the fact that they have to consistently play four-on-five defense because someone decides to express their unhappiness with not getting a foul call on offense by standing in the backcourt and staring at a referee. That's the most egregious, I'd say, sign. And it shows an immense, immense lack of respect for their teammates, as in, my displeasure supersedes doing my part to get the ball back for us. Both LeBron and AD are culprits, but they're not the only ones. As with most things, when your leaders exercise a bad habit, everyone else figures it's okay to do it as well. The biggest indicator to be drawn from this is that no one's in charge. No one is holding everybody accountable. Remember when Westbrook supposedly was going to do that with AD? Yeah, not happening. Not happening there. Doesn't seem to be happening anywhere. And it's certainly not Frank Vogel holding them accountable. But then we suspected that that would be the case. Because if the players feared getting pulled by Frank for complaining instead of hustling, they wouldn't all do it so routinely, egregiously. And before I go, I also have to apologize for a take I had a week or so ago talking about the Miami Heat and the Golden State Warriors both of whom had come out of the gate on fire. I intimated that the Heat were better built to sustain their early success 
and make good on it in the postseason. After getting an up-close look at the Heat, I have to amend that. There are still some tests these Warriors have to pass because of their new composition and their dependence on several players with either questionable tread left on their tires or absolutely no postseason experience. But there are some things about the Heat I took for granted that I should not have. One that I did not, but that was painfully apparent against the Lakers, was that P.J. Tucker is... I don't know what P.J. Tucker is. He's not the defender he once was. He's a hologram of that. And it bothered me that he was being touted as this defensive maestro in the game against the Lakers. He committed two inexplicable fouls in the backcourt on Russ Westbrook, 90 feet from the basket. Made absolutely no sense. He did a lot of moving around, a lot of the, you know, the typical bluster stuff. He wasn't stopping anybody. Russell got his points in the fourth quarter being matched up against P.J. Tucker. Ten points for Russell in the fourth quarter. I think it was five for ten. That was on, on Tucker, not a defensive maven by any stretch. Now, I also thought between his experience going to the finals in the bubble and now landing the security and validation of a $90 million contract, Duncan Robinson would play with the confidence that a designated sniper needs to play with. As in, say, what we're seeing from Pat Connaughton with the Bucks now that he has made shots on the biggest stage. What I saw down the stretch against the Lakers told me otherwise about Duncan. He looks like a guy who still has a Division Three mindset. A what-am-I-doing-up-here mindset. He did not want the ball. He did not want to shoot. And when he went to the free throw line with a chance to cut the Lakers' lead to a single possession with three free throws, he was shaky on all three and missed two. This is your shooter. He looked terrified. When shooting is the biggest contribution you can make, that is not good. Second, I keep overestimating who Bam Adebayo is. I was listening to the Clippers' heat game in my car as Bam went off in the first quarter and Ty Lue was obviously making no adjustments to stop him and I thought I know exactly what Ty is doing because I'd basically seen the same thing against the Lakers just a day earlier the more the heat go to Bam the less anyone else is going to get their game going and the result will be when they get to the fourth quarter They're going to look to Bam to bring the game home, and that ain't going to happen because that's not what Bam does. So they're going to have to turn to somebody else. Now, that was proved against the Lakers when Kyle Lowry inexplicably kept trying to get him the ball 15 feet from the basket. As if Bam Adebayo was going to make a play from there. Not with AD knowing Bam didn't want to shoot a mid-range jumper. Not with Bam being a marginal passer and not having the kind of moves that would force the Lakers to send a double team when AD is the primary defender. Not with Bam being almost as shaky at the free throw line as Robinson. And sure enough, against the Clippers, Bam had 19 first quarter points and finished the game with 30, including all of two points in the final period. Duncan Robinson, by the way, went scoreless. 0 for 6... Overall, 0 for 4 on threes in the fourth quarter. 
Finally, I expected that the Heat would be less Jimmy Butler dependent with the addition of Kyle Lowry. Now, Lowry tried to take up the slack against the Clippers, scoring 22 of his 25 points in the final 12 minutes, but it wasn't enough because the damage was done in the second and third quarters as the Clippers opened up an 18-point lead going into the final period. And Kyle only jumped in after Tyler Harrow came up short in the second and third periods. And that's not out of the norm. What I've seen recently is if Jimmy Butler, when he's healthy, and he missed most of the Lakers game and all of the Clippers game with a sprained ankle, if Jimmy doesn't have it going, the Heat have looked to Hero, who has demonstrated the same two things that made me realize he was lightning in a bottle in the bubble run. He can score in bunches, no question, until you zero in on him. He isn't physically strong enough to get consistent quality shots against good defenders. And he is a defensive liability, as evidenced by Malik Monk torching him for the Lakers. These are not things that can be dismissed as just part of a bad stretch. These are systemic issues. And these are not the hallmarks of teams that go to the NBA Finals. Not in a non-bubble situation. Okay, that was a little more all over the place than my typical episode, I'll admit, but I'm going to blame that on a couple of different factors. One, my TV and writing schedules have disrupted my usual flow on getting out my podcast. You're probably aware of that listening to this, having expected one 24 hours sooner. Now, I'm going to do my best to continue to get the episodes out on a Monday through Friday basis at the usual time. But I'm going to say it now. There may be a missing episode here or there due to my other commitments. Or maybe not a missing episode, but one showing up a little later than usual. If I have a written piece due and a TV show to prepare for in the same 24 hours, chances are the podcast isn't going to take a backseat. It might get stuck in the trunk. All that said, in the next episode, which may not be released until the weekend it might be time to look at the Nets and the Sixers playing without a star and still doing reasonably well. And I'll discuss which one is more sustainable. And some of the things I've heard from people around the league who are actually cheering for the Sixers to win without Ben Simmons. We'll get into that and more in the next episode. In the meantime, as always, thanks for listening. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.